Hello and welcome to episode 5 of season 3 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And for those of you that are just joining us, the Page One Podcast is uh, all about talking to writers of all descriptions about their writing process, their careers, their work, and try to get hints and tips to help yeah. uh, all of us become better writers. That's what we're all struggling there together in the mire. Certainly I am, <laughs> in a way. Um, but who's the guest this week, Tarek? Christian Devine. Is on this week, Marco. He is a screenwriter, uh, but perhaps he's best known as a lead writer on the video games Deus Ex, mm-hmm. the biggie that he did Great way game. back um, when was that early thousands? Yeah, early two thousands. Yeah, yeah I think um, so. I'm pretty pretty influential in the terms of branching narratives Massive. and you know storylines yeah. and things. But then perhaps what he's most well known for now, and for what I know most for, is the life life is strange games. Oh yeah, the, 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 these games are. Uh, brilliant computer games even if you're not into computer games or video games they're very much like a sort of i would i compared it last week i think when i was talking about it to a netflix tv series and i think that's what they're like there's no shooting or anything like that it's it's a very intimate mystery story about uh, these two teenage girls in a small town in the pacific midwest one of them's got some special power where she can rewind time yeah um but i think Christian summed it up best. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure book directed by David Lynch and John Hughes, written by Stephen King. Yeah, that really does hit so many notes. It has that Twin Peaks-y feel, that small-town Stephen King feel, but that coming-of-age story that John Hughes movies had done so well. The games are brilliant, but they're brilliant because the story in these games are really... They really hit home in a way that I think... It might not hit home as much if you were if you're reading it or watching it on mm-hmm. TV, but because you're in control. Yeah. Obviously, last season we spoke to the creator of What Remains of Edith Finch, Ian Dallas. Ian yeah. Dallas, and uh, and that's a similar game in some ways in that it's very narrative based. There's a real story to it, but I think in some ways Life of Strange is is different because the gameplay in Life of Strange is very much second place, and the narrative I feel is the, the a real yeah. I, th- I think the difference between the two games is that. What Remains of Edith Finch is like a sort of series of vignettes or short stories yes. set around this one house and this family. But they're kind of related but not related. Yeah. Whereas Life is Strange is very narrative-based. It's mm-hmm. a very... There is a plot there that drives through the story, yeah. but also the characters are great, great characters. Yeah. Um, the, there's nothing worse than making a bad choice and seeing someone oh, yeah. meet a bad end. No, no. That's totally my fault. So um, anyway, we're going on far too long. Yeah. We talk about all of this with Christian in detail. It's a really interesting chat we had about... Um, writing for video games, but also what it means to be a writer on video games compared to other industries, yep. writing screenplays. Um, so there's a lot in there. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back at the end of the podcast to chat a bit more. See you then. I had read that um, you loved playing D&D as a kid and love being the dungeon master and presumably creating these stories for your for your friends is that was that where your love of storytelling was born no but that certainly was a great intersection at a certain point a perfect one for me because I grew up you know I was very fortunate I you know in my family I had relatives that exposed me to 
really cool cultural stuff that most kids, some kids in America stumble onto and become part of as the generation watching TV and movies and, and having access to cool toys, et cetera. But, you know, in my family, the bent was horror movies and Bruce Lee and James Bond and <laughs> nice. porn films and Monty Python. And for my family, even, you know, we grew up with a very eclectic record collection. So as a kid, I would, I was immediately like, my parents have memories of me literally curled in front of the stereo listening to Ennio Morricone and Frank Sinatra and the Beatles. And so music was a big thing as a storytelling tool because I would envision stories listening to music. And mm-hmm. a song like Eleanor Rigby was the first time that I heard a song as a story. And I yeah. remember being captured by the lyrics and that kind of ignited something. And as in class, I was I was a terrible student in school, even though I could have done the work. <laughs> I just was a bad student because like most <laughs> creative people that you just don't care a lot of times and you're just preoccupied you know but I was a great storyteller and that was my way into school and I was born with one hand so having a disability you kind of have to prepare that people are going to come at you with a certain attitude so my attitude was like I had to be funnier smarter all that stuff Mm -hmm. I had to be you know not because I am just you have to kind of you have to let people know not to pity you or treat you differently or not to bully you and so being a storyteller and drawing comics i was you know i was very popular because i in class they loved hearing my stories i would always read them i'd get little awards for my storytelling everybody wanted me to draw comics with them in it so i had a very good you know i had a really good experience as a kid not everybody's so fortunate you Mm -hmm. know but i saw that firsthand and that experiences like that even go into life is strange later on so Mm -hmm. nothing is really wasted but I loved telling stories. I love film. I love comic books. And I wanted to be, I would draw comics very early on. So I was very fortunate. I always knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to be in media somehow, film or mm-hmm. comics or, 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 or stories. I would read, of course, I was a voracious reader of fiction, you know, as a kid. And I got the Martian Chronicles when I was like 10 as a Christmas present. And that really changed <laughs> a lot because that was the first Ray Bradbury and he became a big huge influence on me mm-hmm. and I got to meet him later on in my life and Hello. and yeah and and get and get a picture with him oh cool and where he actually grabbed my hand for the photo for some reason it was the most bizarre thing <laughs> and I felt being sanctified <laughs> but so I would and I would make super great films and videos and things like the typical kind of geek route and I was a big geek you know particularly you know with science fiction and monster movies and horror but I had a wide range I liked every I was into a lot of different things and I liked everything and I thought you should use everything as a writer as a creator as an artist but you pres- know, everything's men uh, presumably something that was um, not there or maybe not there as much as it is these days is computer games yes and that's and of course but I grew up I'm kind of in a generational shift but I grew up always you know, in the, you know, my dad, fortunately, he loved getting whatever new technology came out. So when I was a kid, he got the first Pong game, which is in the first basic like, video system yeah. available to families. It's so, it's so funny when you see the technology changes. I like to tell people the technology is, you know, for video game is only 50 years old or so. It's not that old. And you see from Pong to Doom is an amazing yeah. leap, you know, and, and my dad got the first Atari system, so I was into that, of course. And one of my best friends growing up was a guy named John Romero, yep. who you may know <laughs> as the creator in Quake. And so me and John were very super simpatico in the same classes. And, you know, we'd hang out, and John, we would draw together 
and we had a very perverse sense of humor and wit and but shared the same love of you know kind of geeky things and john however was a clearly a computer genius where i was not and john instantly was i mean literally in freshman year in high school i was drawing comics and writing stories in class mm -hmm. and in front of me john was writing code for computer games that he was already selling by wow. age 15 16. Wow. john's already selling games to magazines at a time when that's when you sold games you know, that's how games got out through magazines yeah. and computer stores but john was was making money already and he was you know, it was amazing. He was clearly a genius, and I had none of that technical aptitude. I had none of the programming skill, and that was not my fork. You know, the creative side of it was the writing and the, mm -hmm. you know, visualization. Although John was great at that too, though. But even though you wanted to, you're obviously very creative and stuff, but you didn't decide to go down the game route first. Is that right? You you kind of went down the literature, the film world? Is that yeah. Correct? Well, I mean, I was always interested in gaming as a format that would be, I mean, because obviously... When the first gaming kind of cons not consoles, but the first games that came out, many of them were scrolling narrative games. Mm -hmm. So that was the great fun. Like, and and so when I discovered D and D when I was about twelve, and D and D was a really cool kind of subcultural thing in the seventies, and I was just a kid, a baby. But I remember it. I remember seeing in the back of like heavy metal magazines or rock and roll magazines, and I thought it seemed like, well, what is this cool thing? And so when I was like twelve, I got my first D and D box. I ordered it. And I became addicted to it. I brought it to school and immediately got kids addicted to it, and they banned it pretty quick from school. <laughs> I was playing it um, for a variety of reasons. But it was such a great – that was a major storytelling influence on me because I was like, A, I could taught me how to create a story on the fly. Mm -hmm. I would you know, I'd map out basic you know, the maps and, the, and the, what was going to happen in the game you know, basically. But a lot of times you're just bullshitting and you're making stuff up. But you had to make it exciting and keep the players interested. So – I, I like to play the game, but I was frankly a good, better DM than anybody. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I just, and plus I like, I was a control freak, so I wanted to be in charge of the story. But it was fun, but I like having the back and forth of the player creating their own story. And then that forced you to kind of go into their story. So it was, a, to me, it was always like the ideal storytelling uh, tool. And then at a certain point, I wanted to be a filmmaker and I focused on uh, screenwriting. When I was around 18, and said you can't. I could be a master of, you know, I could be a jack of all trades and a master of none, because <laughs> I was doing everything, drawing and writing, making films and music and et cetera, et cetera. But like, I got to focus on one thing, and the cheapest thing available is writing, because all you need is a piece of paper, a pen, or a computer, or whatever. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you want to get into any industry, a creative industry that requires narration or you know a story, and if you are that of that bent. Writing is, in a way, the cheapest, fastest way to get in, although I use the word fastest very loosely. <laughs> that's a precautionary tale, by the way. Nothing, nothing is fast, and nothing no. will happen in the timeline that you think or hope. I was supposed to be rich and famous by the time I was 21. So. <laughs> any day now, any day now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, you, but you're supposed to create these goalposts in your mind. Even if you don't get there, that's part of how it drives you. You're supposed yeah. to, you know, you're supposed to keep going forward. So... I focused on writing for my first screenplay. It took about a year, and you know, started writing screenplays basically. And took some time off to fuck around, experience life, because I also firmly believe as a writer, this is to me one of the most important. When people ask for my writing advice for what it's worth, I tell people make experience life too. Mm -hmm. You have to have something to write about, yeah. and that's why I tell people, you know, when you look at writing. Yeah, there are there are cases where young young people are writing books and writing films and writing TV shows, etc. But that's not usually the case. 
Because when you're 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, you do know things. And you can know things that an 80-year-old cannot know. Mm -hmm. But writing takes time to learn. It's a craft also. And you have to combine that with experience. And unless you're a very old soul or have very wise eyes, which young people <laughs> definitely do, and there are writers that do have that for sure. Mm -hmm. There are people that have that gift. There's no doubt. But that's the exception, not the rule. Mm -hmm. So I, I say you have to experience things in order to bring that to the table as a writer. So go out in the world, get your heart broken, experience joy and loss and grief. All the things that are going to come your way anyway, that shit will come your way. So just mm -hmm. use it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. You know, make it for your mill. That's what I tell people. You're going to get that drama anyway, so you can try to incorporate that. And it, psychologically, I think it's, you know, I think writing works on that level too. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, I focused on the screenwriting and long story short, I, yeah, after I realized I'd been fucking around for too long, experiencing life i realized what age 25 i said what the fuck am i doing i'm not doing what i was set out to do i have all this creative ability but none of the discipline i needed so i went back to school and which i had totally totally avoided after high school i was done with school because as an artist my feeling was nobody gives a shit what school you went to mm -hmm. when you're putting your art out there they really don't care i mean it, it helps you if you want to get a job you know yeah. in certain cases but if you write a book or write a game or what like they don't care what college you went to yeah. you know john romero did not go to college you know he went briefly but he was, didn't need to go he was selling games before he was graduating high school yeah. so you know but it doesn't mean you can't learn things from college and i learned discipline i had great writing teachers so i learned community discipline started poetry readings just to learn you know what it was to become a writer and to force myself into that mode and then started you know, entering contests and the first writing contest I ever entered, I used that as my sign that said, if I don't, something doesn't happen with this, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. <laughs> you know, simply stupid thought, but yeah. that was my thinking then. And I became a finalist for this national playwriting contest. I was one of the 100 finalists out of 4,000 plus people. Nice. And it was, yeah, it was my first thing I ever submitted as a writer. Wow. So, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. But the first thing earlier I'd ever submitted as an artist was to Fangoria for a Draw the Thing contest. And I was a finalist in that. So I got my first print publication in Fangoria magazine. Cool. So, with the, yeah, with Evil Dead on the cover. So I think I'm pretty, that's my <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Might be proud of this moment. But so when I started winning, so I started winning, you know, writing contests and awards. And that's always, once again, I, you know, as a writer, you know, you're going to be very, you're going to be alone a lot and you don't always know what you, you know, how your work's going to be perceived and you can't necessarily trust your friends and you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. You have to have some outside sources that mm -hmm. you go to. People that don't know you, don't give a shit about you and can judge your work in the way that readers are going to judge and editors and the people, other people, you yeah. know, are going to judge it. You need support network for sure. And, you know, you don't want to be around people that rate you or make you feel bad as a writer. Mm -hmm. So you have to find a community of writers or people that you can work with. And that's, that's easy. That's what I did. I had an amazing, started an amazing writing group that's going to this day. And we've, we've, you know, produced bestsellers and writers that have sold their books for, you know, $800,000 and other writing group I was in, in Los Angeles, you know, major bestsellers and people that have created my friend, Matt Nick started the group and he created the show burn notice. So oh, wow. you know, cool, yeah. a lot of writers that I started out with uh, when we were all eating ramen, I all, almost all of them did get to where they wanted to go, you know, and that's that I tell people that too, like every writer and I was listening, you know, to your podcast and I like, one thing I like about it is like every writer's story is totally different. Yeah. And I totally. think where that don't get discouraged. Don't say, well, wow, look what happened to him or her. I'm like, yeah, but that's them. Your story is so different. And the one thing I, and for years I started writing because I love doing nonfiction. I started 
writing essays and articles for Creative Screenwriting Magazine for 10 years plus. So I was an editor and an interviewer. So I interviewed everybody from David Lynch to Rob Zombie to Stan oh, Lee, Steve wow. Soderbergh. So I covered the gamut with the interviews. And it was a great experience for me because, I, A, I love to get into the process, mm-hmm. you know, and, of course, how you sell stuff and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's story was totally different. And that's what I learned. Everybody's story is totally – so your story is going to be unique no yeah. matter what it is. And so when you make it, that's just going to be your story. Mm-hmm. And you know, not everybody's – and so that's what should inspire people, the fact that there really isn't just one way to yeah, get there. I, th- I think that's right. And it's – I suppose the difficult thing is, as you say, it's a solitary thing a lot mm-hmm. of the time of being a writer. And it's to not get too downhearted when it isn't going your way. You know, which is inevitably going to happen. That happens to everyone. We've heard that yeah, from yeah. the biggest people that we've, we've spoken to. And you just have to have that confidence and that, like you say, a support network that you can trust to push you forward, I think. Yeah, and it's and you you have to, you know, I, 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 I tell people straight up, I go, if you want to be a writer, don't. You know, you're not mm-hmm. going to make any money. Yeah. Your friends and family are going to think you're crazy. You're going <laughs> to feast your famine if you sell anything, if yeah. you make it. And you don't know. There's no guarantee. You can start writing your ass off. There's just no guarantee you're going to sell anything. Yeah. You know, and then I say as a follow-up, and if you're a real writer, you're not going to listen to anything I just said. <laughs> it just- well, that's true. I think no one, no one becomes a writer for the for the money. Do they, they, they become a writer because they just want to write and they have that any urge they to get a story. They need to do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, although I suspect, yeah, I, I mean, and sometimes I wish I was that kind of writer, although I certainly do like to be paid and want to be paid, only because I know that, as Harlan Ellison once said in a book, money is freedom. You know, money is not what we want because we, we want to feel good about ourselves. We need that because in society that forces artists and writers to live a certain way of people. Yeah. You, want, you don't want to worry about your rent or you worry about your food or worry about this or that or your car. And those stresses can actually go into the writing. Like that actually explains a lot of what made Stephen King famous mm-hmm. because he was the first horror writer to combine. Not quite the first. I see Richard Matheson probably did that earlier with I Am Legend. Mm-hmm. Um, but – but Stephen King was certainly the first horror writer to combine that blue-collar, middle-class mentality with horror where suddenly the beer you're drinking is infected and you turn into a jealous blob <laughs> eating cats. You know? And that's why the early Stephen King – that's why he caught on because it was so brilliant. You know, It was yeah. just that you – know, and, and so you know, your moment – all this stuff is so – there's just no guarantees with art. I tell people there's just no guarantees. Yeah. But yeah. I do believe that if you – that if you work hard and you have some talent, you'll find your niche somewhere. You'll find it. So, I was writing scripts and getting attention, optioning lots of scripts, and but you know before that, before I moved to Hollywood, I was at Berkeley. Uh, John uh, called me up at one point. He had started his own company called Ion Storm in Dallas, mm-hmm. and he said, "Hey, do you want to come work on my game, Daikatan and write?" I said, goodbye, Berkeley. So, yeah, it was – and my house actually caught on fire that night. So it was kind of like a sign from um, – uh, yeah, seriously, yeah, seriously. I was like, I guess I'm going to, to Dallas. <laughs> Definitely a sign if ever there was one. Yeah. Um, and so that was an amazing experience. So I got to write for Die Katana, which is a whole story unto itself and you know, a whole other experience. And then when I was writing for Daikatan, I met Warren Spector, who was working in Austin on Deus Ex, and he liked my work and asked if I wanted to come write for Deus Ex. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And obviously, so the, the, they're two very different games, aren't they? Because Daikatan is a straightforward, you know, linear story. Yeah, whereas you've got yeah. all the branching pathways with, you know, with the, with the uh, 
Deus Ex. Yeah, it's a complete, it's a, it's a whole different game. And that must be yeah, a completely totally. different approach than writing those two types of games. Yeah, totally. But, you know, but the fun part, and, and I think the thing about if you're, if you're, I don't know if you're a good writer, but, mm. you know, if you know how to write, you know, you know how to write in different genres and you can make, you know, like I can write in the broad kind of, Daikatana was very, very ambitious. The game didn't necessarily match up to the ambitions of it, but it was very, very ambitious. And, and so the writing reflected a more broad, that feeling, but it was still very cool and fun to do. And Deus Ex represented this kind of dark, paranoid cyberwall, which I love William Gibson stuff. So mm-hmm. to me, it was like, you know, Daikatana was Ray Harryhausen and, you know, uh, Deus Ex was William Gibson. So yeah. you can love both and know how to, if you're good at what you do, you can jump between those two or three worlds. And I, I could easily, you know. I, I was just going to say, at what, at what stage were you brought on to that? Because I suppose that's the thing with video games. It's, I imagine, a very rare thing for the writer to be the person that says, right, here's my idea yeah. and this is what we're going to make a game of. Presumably they brought those games to you and then you created the story within there, helped them create the story within there. No, I mean, Daikatana was John's story. I came in and wrote cinematics and dialogue okay. and war and Deus Ex was Warren's story all the way. And he had a massive Bible for the game, a ma- he had a massive design doc. And I mean, I was able, you know, I contributed ideas and, you know, talked mm-hmm. about things. We have mm-hmm. brainstorming sessions, you know, and think that's what people bring, you know, designers and writers and artists all bring their ideas. You know, everything is a product of this multiple, but there is, a, it's like a movie. There's a director, designers are the mm-hmm. ones in charge. So, and usually the writers too often or not are brought in too late, mm-hmm. you know, because writing growing up, and that was always my big problem with the games, even though there was good writing out there because the designers tended to be writers you know, for a lot of games, but it's also designers should be focused on the game and you can't be focused on writing everything and designing the game. That's a lot to ask for, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and it's a smaller game. So there tended to be too much writing dilution and writing was thought as an afterthought and people would often like what writing, <laughs> yeah. you know, even though there, there was, a, there's a lot of Ultima games. I mean, Final Fantasy, there's a lot of games that have good, great writing, yeah. you know, you know, and, um, and so there, there are Monkey Island. There's lots of games. LucasArts games always had great, you know, storytelling yeah. and stuff like that. So there's always been a good template for good writing in games. It just was never the thing thought of, and, and tends to be not the thing thought of. But it's a thing you need to do early because it's harder to change technology later than earlier. It's easy yeah. to change writing. It's hard to change technology, mm-hmm. and, and there's too many results of that. And and so writing is still, as I tell people, it's still in the game world. It's still kind of in, in its infancy. It's that we're at the period of you know, the 1960s cinema where they were kind of breaking all the ratings code and you were allowed, you know, the censorship was kind of gone pretty much. So mm-hmm. now we're in a really great, great, great era of writing for games because a lot of the rules and, and, and roles and regulations are gone away. And that was my problem, you know, writing for games in the nineties is I could see what Deus Ex I knew was, was visionary. I knew it was going to be just great. You know, I was always like, this is going to be where gaming, you know, this is, you know, this is going to work. This, yeah. is, this is going to yeah. be awesome. And, I, and, and it was a real... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, just say that it was really the first example of a game that, or at least I played anyway, that had so many different options and the slightest things, the choices you made at one point, you didn't realise would echo down, you know, levels later, etc. And and how do you how do you juggle when you're writing something like that? Or how do you keep all the branching pathways in your head and, and knowing there's a payoff down the line here if, if someone does this? 
type thing. Well, that's why there's Excel docs and narrative designer <laughs> because you have a team, you know, of people that are kind of overseeing stuff. So you have somebody like usually a narrative designer is the one that oversees the kind of scheduling for the writing mm-hmm. and using Excel docs and they kind of, you know, are guiding, you know, maybe laying out what needs to be written, et cetera. And then the writer can focus on the writing and not, you know, this other stuff. I think that's important. You know, you got to, you know, and people don't really understand. And it's, it's there's, and there's reasons for this, that what makes up a writing team or writers on a video game. And I think now things are too diluted for me in terms of, 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 of how they approach in discussing this, because, you know, well, what is, what is writer mean? What does narrative designer mean? Mm-hmm. What does story mean? What does this mean? You know, you, does this mean you're not you're only contributing to one thing or two things? In like when you look at it from a, from the writer writers guild in Hollywood for screenwriters, everything is very strictly delineated. Yeah. You know what every writer does, and they don't you know they don't mess around. And games will get there. You know, like I said, it's it's a, we're in this very early medium and and early era where we're just now sussing out what game writing means. So. Yeah. And I was disappointed in the 90s because I thought as, with as elevated as, as I thought Deus Ex was, there was I, I was still too much of a of a little boy mentality in the gaming world. And I was like – I kind of looked at my watch and I said, in about 10 years, let's get back together <laughs> because there needs to be a lot of growing up. Yeah. And there's, there needs to be women here and other disabled people, people of color and et cetera, et cetera. You know, it just to me it was a very limited – Brilliant, you know, it just it was it's just nothing to do with people. It's just the nature of the of the industry of the era. Yeah, I knew yeah. games had to grow up, and they would, and they did, which is great, you know. And and games like Deus Ex helped it grow up. So, in the two thousands, things started shifting, and um, I got a call from a from a friend, a great uh, French writer, and she said, uh, you know, hey there, I know a a company that's looking for an American screenwriter for their video game. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to talk to them. So it was Don't Nod Entertainment. So they sent over a couple clips of what they were doing. And I was, the first thing I saw for Life is Strange was the menu, which was just basically this trees in the wind, kind of this Lynchian tableau uh-huh. of, again, you know, and this, and immediately I just got it. I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. I get what you're doing. And then the first scene I saw they sent me was non-voice scene with uh, with uh, David Madsen discovering Chloe and Max in the room dancing and smoking yeah. puff. And I was like, this is exactly what I've been waiting to write. <laughs> this is exactly yeah. what I've been waiting to do. Oh, my God. I was so thrilled. I was so you know, excited and I was so scared. I was like, I have to get this. If I don't get this, I am joining the Peace Corps. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you still put this in front of me because I had to test for the game too. So I wasn't, I hadn't gotten the game. Oh, I, was right, just, okay. I was testing for it. How That's do you a whole test other... for that? Do you, do you write sample bits and everyone? Yeah, every game company is different and, and, you know, so you never know. I, I, I find the testing doesn't always necessarily present, you know, exactly your you know how how writing is best used because they're just very narrow you know questions that you know you could easily change your direction of if you knew more about Mm -hmm. so you know but some tests are good and 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 you know they need to kind of see what kind of writing you can do so it makes sense so but the life of strange test was just a series of write a dialogue you know between you know these two characters etc so things that i could just do in my sleep and that felt natural and that the, what the kind of story situations they presented sounded fun. 
And so I just immediately, you know, just crafted, I taught myself twine, you know, and created a whole twine branching dialogue to mm-hmm. show what I could do. Cause I really wanted to get this and uh, I was really excited to me. It was like the ultimate choose your own adventure book. Yeah. 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 That's kind of yeah. how I approach it. The Choose Your Own Adventure book done by John Hughes and Stephen King and David Lynch. Exactly. I mean, and as, Judy Blue. I, I, I suppose we should explain a bit for, for listeners that might not be familiar with yeah. Life is Strange, but um, it, is, it is a game, for people that aren't, that think of video games as shooters and stuff, it's, mm-hmm. it's entirely the opposite. Couldn't it's, get further away from No, it's, it's a game that uh, tells a really quite intimate, but, mystery story i suppose of of two girls in a small town and one of them's got special powers but but it's got this sort of branching narrative as you say that depending on what you say you can choose your options as you're speaking to people and that'll have an impact on the story later down the line and stuff like that and you know when i first played it i was i was sort of blown away by it to be perfectly honest because it was it was unlike anything else that i'd played before um and it, it was that experience that you were describing before, which was video games growing up. It, you know, it, it was telling a story that you would more normally see on on the TV screen or the cinema, but uh, you were you were part of it. You were you were part of the, that story, and that's what that's what I thought made it unique. Yeah, and it was brilliantly conceived. And I mean, I tell people because I get a lot of people that don't. I mean. Mo- People don't. There's a certain segment of the population that simply don't understand what video games are yeah. anymore. And so I meet people all the time. They're like, "Oh, I don't like games because they're shooting." I'm like, "I understand you think that all video games are just one thing, but things are different now. Mm-hmm. Things are way different." I go, "Okay, well, there's video games about cancer mm-hmm. survivors. You know, like yeah. this is a whole different world." And so for people that don't understand games, I, to sell life is strange. I say, "It's a choose your own adventure book done as a Netflix interactive series." Directed by David Lynch, Stephen King, yeah. Yeah. and Bloom and John Hughes, you know, and that's, that's it. That's actually quite and a nice way to to see it because it is. I can see exactly how 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 you mean that, and it, it does play like that. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think there's any accident that Netflix later did a interactive style show. Yeah, that's right. Know. That's right. And mm-hmm. so. Because and and you know and the, and the French team were big fans of Netflix, by the way. So they were smart to make it episodic. That's one reason they wanted to do episodic, and it was smart too because it creates, like Dickens knew this. You know, having stories end in a mystery yeah. creates anticipation, and it was a fun way. And the story was a mystery and involving, so it was a great way to get the fans, you know, and the players to contribute their own, you know, ideas and yeah. themes and whatever. It was awesome. It was the greatest thing just to watch the fans kind of you know, embrace these characters. And it's all locked down then or like when episode one comes out, have you got episode five in the can or do you adapt things if you know if you see a theory someone says or if well, something we don't we like writing, going Yeah, we were writing the series as we were releasing it, the, okay. the first five episodes because we had took that long to, to do it, you know, and so you have to release them as you're doing it. So and, and certainly we read feedback and certainly, you know, things, you know, we listen to feedback and but there are certain things that were kind of already set so there's not much you can do about it it's like mm-hmm. i said a lot of stuff is you know it's hard to change things in the game even as much as you know what time you might think you have it's still a lot of things have to be set in stone because it's very expensive to change technology you know on a, on a whim or a dime and yeah. things don't people don't understand things don't change as rapidly as you might think and it's not as easy to say why don't they just do that mm-hmm. well just doing that might take a year yeah exactly <laughs> 
Yeah, and then another $5 million. Yeah, especially with mocap or actors and yeah. et cetera, need to come back and Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so we, we did bring back one of the characters, Kate, in a scene because she was so, you know, you know, we had the option to do that and that we did that and we were really grateful. And it was a great scene to write and it was good. It was a, it was a good scene for Kate to have a good scene for, for players, so, you know, to love that character. So the things like that we were able to kind of add in. Was was one of the other things, <laughs> are all, there was this sort of, a stupid uh, thing that arose around the use of the use of a word in the first. Oh, yeah. I think it was episode one, I think, in particular, Hela. Um, yeah. And then I think that was called. You kind of played with that in one of the later episodes as well. As a result, well, this is this is a great. This is, I'm glad we got you brought that. This is a great lesson in linguistics because <laughs> one of the things I was most excited about, and I, and I literally put this in my test. I had Chloe saying Hela because I was. Um, in California, hell is a very common phrase you'll hear in Northern California particularly. And you hear it growing up over the years. Although it's it's a phrase that's regional, like a lot of phrases. Mm-hmm. You don't hear it in Southern California. And so people in Los Angeles, if they heard the word hell, they'll roll their eyes and go, oh, you're from North, North Cal. You know, so just like you could be in part of Scotland or part mm-hmm. of England or part of wherever, and they might say something like, oh, you're part of the North, oh, yeah. you're from the South, you're from the North or whatever. Yeah. It's just a regional thing. And I, and I, as a writer, I love language. And one of the things I wanted to bring to Life is Strange is just this playful sense of language and, you know, bring in the, and the game is kind of supposed to be in this art college and has a lot of influences, cultural influences mm-hmm. laid on very thick, no doubt, but with a very playful tone. And so I started noticing that people were saying the word hell a lot. Young people were saying the word hell. I thought it was funny because I hadn't heard it in a while. And so I immediately gave it to Chloe and only Chloe, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is going to be the word that comes out of the game. This is going to be the word that I want to go around the world. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. And I was so excited just because I thought it was so regionally accurate, mm-hmm. you know. And it revealed something about the character also. And so when it came out, in the game came out, it was interesting to have people say, well, nobody says Hella. And, and there's people in London. Nobody says hella. Yeah. Or, yeah. You, well, they don't say hella in London, but they don't say sus in 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 Sacramento either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. And so why would you assume that people say? I thought it was very interesting that people kind of. It actually showed me something about the interconnectivity that we all have now, that people kind of assume that we all share the same language everywhere, yeah. or that because they haven't heard something, it doesn't. It's not valid. Yeah. There's something to that. Like, well, I have never heard that, so it clearly doesn't exist it clearly isn't I, real it's i wonder if it's even more because it, you know if it was in a film you might accept it more but because you're you're sort of part of the story interacting with it yeah you kind of feel hold on you know you're sort of feeling like you're you interacting put, put, with these put characters into yeah. It, yeah and then they're not yeah. used to hearing a word sure like that. of course and, and that's and that's and that's part of the course with uh, actually like i'm saying if you're watching this in a series or movie and mm-hmm. the characters help you wouldn't bat your eye no. yeah why would you in the game, you can see, though, I think what situates Life is Strange apart from other games and what I'm proud of is that the voice is different from this game. You 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 have, a to me, a lot of different voice levels in this game. It's not just, you know, and like I said, I, re- I read reviews, well, I hated Life is Strange because everybody says hell all the time. Well, only one character says hell. <laughs> yeah. and, and, that, and that's fine if you don't like the word. I mean, I don't use the word. I don't like it. But somebody use and once again, people have to differentiate between I think this is a thing going on, maybe we have going on today, where I don't like that word, meaning, so therefore that word yeah. shouldn't yeah. be used, yeah. And, yeah. or I don't like that word, so nobody should use it, or something like that, which is kind of, but what was fascinating is that 
somebody wrote an article called Life is Hell is Strange about a month after episode one. Uh-huh. And she's from North California talking about how she loved the game because it accurately depicted mm-hmm. this Linko. Yeah. And that kind of turned the tide. And suddenly you start seeing the word Hella in commercials, in TV shows, <laughs> on Sunset Boulevard, literally the word Hella. I was going to GDC and the word Hella was on the side of a building. <laughs> and then one year after Life is Strange, what war did Webster's Dictionary add? <laughs> there you go. Yes. Vindication at last. Uh, you, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it. Yeah, hella. <laughs> One year for life is strange. And when you're when you're writing uh, for someone like uh, Chloe or or Rachel um, or Max, who are um, younger girls, is it is it hard to switch between? You no, know, you you you've done the the male characters before, and you're you're jumping to like a younger girl. Is it is it hard to find a voice like that? You know, it's all depending on the character and. and you know, and of course, you know, there's always this constant argument, but, you know, about writing what you know, what you are, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, growing up, when I started writing, trying to find my voice in the writing, a lot of my characters tended to be me, my point of view immediately. Mm-hmm. And I got really bored with that kind of early on. And so my first scripts, the characters tended to be, the lead characters tended to be variations of me or my point of view. Yeah. And so yeah. the first script that I didn't do that in, I wrote with two female characters and that was actually the first script that got me my first agent and it kind of changed my writing life because I realized that I didn't have to write from just from Christian Devine's point of view. Mm -hmm. I could write from other people's point of view or perceived point of view. I could put my point of view into multiple characters, but it didn't have to be just, you know, how I saw the world per se or how this one male character saw the world. So I just like exploring voices and I don't claim that I know any more than anybody else, but it's up to the reader to an audience to decide if the voice works or not. But I just enjoyed, you know, and that was my problem in Hollywood is most of my scripts had female leads. And so even when I had Everett Wood attached as a star, one of my scripts cool. with a great director, you know, they would, financiers would say, hey, you know, we can't give you money because it's a female lead. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, <laughs> literally, and I'd say, do you guys know there's women, like 52% of the <laughs> yeah. women? Like, why would you ignore That's that as a business insane, model? Yeah. I mean, but that's literally for years. Things have changed. Seriously, like in the past five years, something major has shifted. You know, and, and life is strange. You know, I was always very frustrated in Hollywood because I always thought my scripts were way too ahead of their time, mm-hmm. and I was always waiting. And and often with art, it, it's just a matter of timing. Mm-hmm. And life is strange was that one moment where all of my acceptances and all the rejections, all that came into, you know, it wouldn't have happened unless you know what I mean. So okay. I tell people, even your rejections are part of that. A stepladder, yeah. You know, so everything that leads you there leads you there. Yeah. So well, I was very fortunate that you know that, and I'd already—I shouldn't say—trained myself in writing female characters, but I just particularly like writing those kind of characters and writing various characters, all sorts of characters, disparate characters. And so I just—I just looked at it from the point of view of what, what you know, Jean-Luc Cano is the French writer who wrote the original story for Life is Strange. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I just sussed out, well, what's her, you know, Max is a nerd. She's a geek, you know, so she's got to be, and she's kind of quiet, but she's got this savage, witty Mm -hmm. interior monologue. And I thought that would be fun to present instead of this kind of wallflower weakling, you know, which is not really, but, you know, just, it's more looking at the character and the funny voice. And Chloe, of course, is the kind of like the hellion, the hella, you know, so she's the one that's always going to be like the rebel. So that's another, you know, kind of where to find the voice there, Mm -hmm. but she's got to 
uh, you know, she's got this background with her stepfather and her, her father died in a car crash. She's got that kind of baggage. And so she's acting out a lot and trying to find who she is. So I think if you just approach them as characters and what's the story with them, that's how you find their voice. And you hope that the voice connects. It doesn't always early, you know, but for Life is Strange, these characters happen to really, really connect with people in an amazing way. And that to me is still the most amazing thing is watching you know, as a writer, you know, you don't always get this and I don't, I don't know how common it is. So I, I can't, you know, I can't say this with certainty, but just to get an audience of people that, that cry over the, over characters or things that you've written, mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's pretty great. That's, yeah. if that's all it is, that's pretty great, you know? And so we're just really lucky that, that players and fans embrace these characters. I mean, and they did in a big way because life is strange. Um, was obviously a massive success, and t- especially in terms of the writing, it won I think a BAFTA for best story, um, and uh, won a Peabody Award yeah. as well. I think. You know, we're very fortunate with the awards. The the Peabody, I'm particularly proud of because that to me signifies the first video game to win a Peabody Award. Mm-hmm. So the Peabody, for people who don't know, it's 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 the electronic equivalent of Pulitzer. It was started as a response, like to give you know that level of credibility to, to media projects. So Rod Serling got a Peabody, you know, Mad Men is a Peabody, mm-hmm. all these shows, Simpsons is a Peabody. It's a great history. Uh, and, and getting that was such amazing validation to me just for video game storytelling, video games, because yeah. it elevates yeah. it to that next level where people can't dismiss it so easily as, oh, it's just this or that. And I understand why people think that because it's not a medium that everybody, frankly, is going to be into or play. You know, most of my friends have not played Life is Strange and probably never will, you know, and they can't get into games. And that's 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 a swath of that's definitely a big swath of the audience. But, you know, but as narrative changes, gaming is going to be seen as more and more, you know, Roger Ebert famously said that video games couldn't be art. Yeah. And I and I, I wish he was around because I specifically put in a put in uh, the director, Russ Meyer, in, in Life of the Strange, who Roger Ebert was friends with and wrote a screenplay for Beyond the Battle of the Dolls. Mm-hmm. And I referenced Russ Meyer specifically to tell Ebert, yes, <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. Life of the Strange is art, and so is Russ Meyer. And I think Ebert would have said, I think actually he totally would have said, yeah, okay. I, yeah. And he would have seen other games, Edith Finch, games like that. Yeah. That was a great interview. Absolutely. He did with yeah. You know, game, there's lots of, you know, they're not just Life is Strange, lots of games, you know, are, are, are in the zone of, of where narrative storytelling is, you know, it's on a level of film and literature, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. As you say, there were, you know, the effect that Life is Strange had on people, the, the feelings that they had for these characters, mm-hmm. that is art. If it can touch oh, you totally, like that, then yeah. that, that's, what, that's yeah. what art is. How, how much more do you need yeah. to do for it not to be honest? Um, one question I was going to ask you was, um, obviously there are these branching storylines and then at the end of Life is Strange, I won't spoil it for people, but there's a there's sort of a big um, choice that you have mm-hmm. to make and depending on what happens, it changes the end of the game. Do but in your head, do you have a definitive canon ending, if you like, or are they both equally valid? Yeah, the um, the uh, Kobayashi Maru uh, <laughs> where I have both endings in both universes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Divine's <what> I- <laughs> cat. 
there is no there is no there is no to lose <laughs> yeah well, <that's> good. <laughs> just two universes co- cohabiting together in my, my canon <laughs> um, when, when you went on to do life is strange 2 then um it's it's interesting because it's it's similar to the first one in a lot of ways but it's also very different it's arcadia being the first one was almost a kind of character by itself but this is more of a road trip one um and and I feel you, you, you touch on a lot of issues which mm. are quite valid, especially nowadays, maybe especially in America, racism, immigrants, etc. Was was that quite important for you to have us have a say about those options, about those um, themes? Themes. Yeah, I mean, and I think you know, once again, John Luke wrote the story for this, and then Michelle and Raul, the direct designers and co-directors. You know, definitely wanted to tell a road trip. They love road trip stories. They're all we're all fans of Kerouac. We're all fans of I love road trip narratives. One of my favorite kind of stories is road yeah. trips. I mean, seriously, I, I don't know if you guys have seen Until the End of the World, Vin Vendors. No, no, uh, oh well, it's it's an amazing film. He made it in 1991, and it's the most expensive film shot around the world. Oh. It's originally a five-hour cut and released butchered, of course, but one of the most amazing soundtracks ever made and totally visionary. Predicts GPS, and all, it's set in the future, so he predicts all sorts of crazy things. But Criterion finally released the five-hour five-hour cut, and it's completely worth watching. But cool. it's like, you know, yeah, I love but road movies like that. Anything where you're on the road, journeys like that are yeah. great. And they're great storytelling tools because you know that you're going to meet – in the first one, you're centered around Arcadia Bay, which, like you said, is like a character – and and that and the and the you know the power and the pleasure of that is of course you get to establish all that kind of atmosphere yeah. and then when you go on the road you have to break that up because you're going to be going to different elements which is what I like as a story as a writer that's what I think is exciting you get to have all these different layers of um, but a road trip story is is great because you get to meet you know all sorts of disparate characters and it, to me it, it ups the ante for just different characters and different environments. And I love the environmental storytelling. Life is strange too. Like I said, there's a lot of layers of writing too going on in the game that we should talk about. So I just bring, you know, so I'm writing, you know, branching dialogue and then the environmental storytelling, what you read, mm-hmm. then the thoughts, what they see, mm-hmm. hear and think. And then the Zen dialogues where they just kind of sit down and we go over that with the narrative designers also. So there's a lot of level of writing going on. It's not just one, and you know, people maybe don't appreciate that in games how much different writing is going on yeah. in there, yeah. in there. So it's not just one thing. Um, so the road trips element was great, and of course, the political element is very important, and it's important to me because I think we're living in perilous times right now, and I'm proud of Life is Strange too for taking a stand where mm-hmm. it would not be so popular mm-hmm. necessarily. And some people may perceive it to be unrealistic. I think pretty much most of what's going now has borne out yeah. what yeah. was in the game. We're, you know, we were writing the, you know, the game before, you know, right during the election, basically. You know, so mm-hmm. things hadn't gone there. But I could see exactly where things were going, you know. And so, you know, the game reflects that. But, it's, it, you know, once again, it's up to the player to kind of determine their point of view about this stuff, too. And yeah. the characters all yeah. have their points of view. And so it's up to you know, the player to engage in that journey on whatever level they, you know, they're going to. So I'm proud of the game for having a voice. And I think the game will be looked at in time as one of the few games, you know, by, you know, just by nature, by necessity of what games are that actually is speaking out about kind of what's going on in present day America. Yeah. No, I think it definitely does that. And it's a very impactful game yeah, for that reason, absolutely. I think. And it's important, I think, like, again, to show that games can kind of grow up and they can have, 
issues and, and opinions about mm-hmm. about important topics like that. And actually, yeah, you're, yeah. T- you're touching, in some ways, you're touching a lot more than a film about the same themes mm-hmm. that might not reach as many people as a game would, actually. Yeah, and this and, and like I said, people can have, can bring their own point of view mm-hmm. to what the story is saying yeah, and what the characters exactly. are, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we try not to be preachy or didactic. That's not what it's about. You know, it's still about giving the player the choice and the element. But there's still a point of view, and there's still things we're outraged by and things that we, you know, want to comment on. And and that's one thing that you do in art. And you know, the character Brody says everything is political. You know, in the game, yeah. it may not be true. You know, but in, in, in certain cases, you can't escape it and you have to kind of, at a certain point, you know, have art that reflects what's going on in the culture. Art yeah. does, art reflects and refracts culture, as I say. Yep, definitely. So, uh, so the writing process for a game obviously involves the designers, involves everyone else. I'm just wondering how long that process is um, from start to end. It must take much longer than writing a screenplay, for example, or something like that. Yeah, it's an ongoing process because the game is ongoing. So you might change dialogue, you know, when we're in the doing voice sessions. That's one thing. That's that's often when you can hear some clunky dialogue too. And I'll be like, "Ooh, let's let's change that to the. Let's yeah. change that or something else." Uh, you know, some so there's that's the good thing about it. You can you know, you kind of like change things, you know, when when they need to be. And so it's an ongoing process and, you know, you're up against really tight deadlines and that's good and bad. It's good because it forces you to be super creative lightning. It's bad because as a writer, you always wish you could change everything you're writing yeah. or, have, or go back to it. And I do believe in, you know, writing is revising, but sometimes I do believe first thought, best thought. That's the, the beat, you know, spontaneous theory. Mm-hmm. Like the first thought you have might be the best thought that you have you know you don't want to go back and tamper too much mm-hmm. like something certainly I, I you know i could go back and say oh i wish i could change that line or that but then there's other things that are so raw and beautiful in a way that come out of that you know that necess- the need for speed yeah or the need for brevity or whatever that you don't you know you could you could tamper with it too much and lose a lot of what's special about mm-hmm. things too so there's always that kind of balance but there's such an enormous amount of writing for the game there's there's millions of yeah. words so right yeah. there you're, you're in a whole another level that's beyond screenwriting like you know the level of writing is just staggering you know and that's what's fun about it you know but that's also the challenge of it too and, so. then, and then how do you i mean plan out your scenes I mean is, is it a case that there's actually not that much planning because you're essentially given a scene and say that in this scene A to B happens but we need the dialogue to reflect this can you just give us some some chat yeah, back it'll, usually, it'll be like a story scene it'll be like you know and maybe they've done the mocap maybe they haven't in mm-hmm. the case of Life is Strange I would write you know the cinematic cut scenes some had already been done and other times I would write the scenes and they would animate those scenes based on the screenplay elements and then the director would come in and then do the mocap direction and, and, and do that. And other times, you know, it could just be, you know, it would be based on um, what pieces of animation they might have available, et cetera, et cetera, in, in the editing. So, um, so there might be seen like two Chloe and Max in a room talking and this is what they need. You know, they need the dialogue for yeah. the characters. Yeah. So you got to, you know, they kind of know what they want, how the scene to end. You know, you have a certain amount of time frame. You can't have the characters, you know, like maybe have a couple minutes yeah. at most of dialogue. So, you know, but then there might be two or three branching choices based off some other previous thing decisions you made. So, and then also, 
So you've got to come up with a template for that. And that's more like a screenplay format. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, the environmental storytelling where Max might look around the room and look at everything and have a thought. And then you, there's another, you know, kind of document for that. And then there maybe another document for the, for the Zen dialogues when she sits down by herself, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. there's like different four or five different kind of document tableaus that we go over. And, and also, like, if she looks at the computer or something like that. Yeah, web page or something. Yeah, and, and that and the writing once again, yeah, that's a whole another. That's another um, page of uh, with the its own layout of um, description of what you know the environmental storytelling, what you're looking because at. It's and, so much writing, There's, and as you say, not just the written stuff, but the spoken stuff, the thought stuff. It's and keeping track of all that. The, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you have to have great. You know, we have. You know. Um, we have Matthias and Masha um, for Life is Strange 2. And Matthias was a more narrow designer for uh, End of Life is Strange and Life is Strange 2, and he's great. So, you know, and, you know, they're able, and we have a producer, you know, who keeps track, too, of everything. So there's people that have to keep their job is specifically just to keep track on that Excel and keep track of – and it is it is work. It is a major amount of work, and yeah. that's, a, that's why you got to bring the – you know, it's important for people, for writers to come in early for the game writing process because yeah. it can save the team a lot of time for stuff that might not work later or things that they've got, they've got to fix. Yeah. And so it's important to listen to the writers. So the writers don't have – you know, don't – aren't necessarily – I was given an enormous amount of freedom in life, very fortunately, an enormous amount of freedom in life is strange, you know, to bring things to the table. And so you don't always have that, though. And some things are, you know, you have to just do things based on exactly what's there in front of you or what needs to be done, et cetera, et cetera. Some things are just going to be voicing. You're just going to be doing voices for characters, maybe some limited dialogue, you know, descriptions, et cetera. So it's all it's it's a different every every game is going to have a different kind of, you know, storytelling element. But the, the but the industry, but the storytelling you know, I call it the blue age of storytelling now because it's just, it's so pervasive that storytelling is becoming so important to games mm -hmm. and it's going to get to the point of literature and it's going to get to the point where, you know, I'm just joining the video game, uh, uh, caucus for the writer's guild, you know, so they're starting, you know, they're trying to get, you know, the writer's guild involved in the game companies, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, okay. and, yeah, and that will happen at some point. You know, once the game, once the companies see the benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you know, they once they become signatories, that'll help writers. And it's just important to get get the word out there for writers and to show writers. As I tell writers, you know, it's a very competitive field, and so people ask me, how do you get into it? You know, it's you have to be writing, and you have to have samples. Uh, from you know of branching dialogue particularly make your own twine game learn how to program twine it's pretty easy and it's a great tool to teach yourself how to do branching dialogue and use that as a sample i tell people and so it you know it is a very competitive field but there but the market is always expanding and i think it's just going to get bigger and bigger as the kind of game model becomes you know more expansive I, well and also i think as well the the sort of games these sort of games, these story-driven games, are easier for smaller companies to make. And, you know, with yeah. things like uh, Game Pass and the various things on Xbox mm -hmm. and PlayStation, you know, there's, there's and Steam on the PC, smaller companies are able to get their games out there in front of people more. And it is these story-driven games that are the cheaper ones for them to yeah. make. It's, you know, I mean, you just wouldn't see a massive company 
doing such a small intimate game no would you? Yeah. i don't think so no i mean or they they could do a small intimate game as a big game you know yeah. i mean yeah. even like a become human is it could be an intimate game but it's a big giant well, that's game. true actually that's, that's you know point, so yeah. things like that that's but that's that's the nice thing because that will you know that will bring more fold and yeah definitely it's cheaper and it's that's actually good because it means a lot of companies can be creating a lot of games with a lot they require a lot of writing and storytelling and that it creates options and also you know writers you know can be looking at creating their own games that mm. empowering themselves it's important yeah. to empower yourself as a writer too you know mm. i'm writing a novel right now because it's because it's you know i need to i've been working on it for a while and i want to finish this fucking thing but <laughs> um but it's a totally different discipline than writing for games or scripts it's, it's completely different but that's but it's fun because it's totally empowering mm, and i'm yeah. kind of on a giddy high yeah. from that right now and i'll be you know i want to capture this moment where i'm really <laughs> happy with what i'm writing as opposed to later i'll be like oh my god what is this shit? <laughs> and, and i suppose the, the thing with the novel is that you know you could write it yourself and then put it out tomorrow on amazon or something you know you you, you can completely control that there's no one else needs to be in the room to get that product that's, out there to people that's what it's all about. You know, I'm, I'm working on another project now and that's great. And it, you know, it's good to have, I, I just like, you know, I wrote a novel years ago mm-hmm. and now I've come up with a different idea and I've been working on it for a couple of years and, and in the background while, while I'm working on game projects and it's been really fun and I've been having, now I'm really focused on it right now for a bit and it's really a different discipline, but it's a lot of fun. And, and just the sense of like the empowerment is great. It's like, you, nobody can tell me what to do, yeah, yeah. and no matter what it is, it's going to be my baby. Yeah, exactly. you know, if it survives or not, it's going to be mine. And there, and there's a lot of you know that feels good too. I mean, it's great. I mean, I love. Being, it's great to be part of a team. That's why you write for games. You don't want you know writing is very solitary job. So it's for writing. So it's great to write for you know for for video games because you get to work with a team. Then you get to go and do some writing by yourself, and you go hang out with the team and interact. Yeah. Then you go back to your, you know, your cave, et cetera, or your cafe. <laughs> my cafe is my cave cafe, you know, <laughs> wired all day. But, you know, everything you said, I think it's important for writers just to have a lot of experiences and, and a lot of disciplines. And and what what I like about Life is Strange is, you know, in a way it's, it's purposely hipsterized because it's set in art college in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of – and I went to Berkeley as a filmmaker. So all you're doing all day is dropping names, you mm-hmm. know, and that's what you do. So – but it's important to bring the fact that, you know, I think writers can bring in all these things that have never been brought to games before. Like what I wanted to bring were things in my influences, Russ Meyer, Godzilla movies, you know, um, all sorts of Harlan Ellison, you know, all yeah. sorts of different literature, you know, uh, Ibsen, you know, Harold Pinter, you know, this game, you know, Life of Strange has got a lot of – and the team, the French team have got their own influences all over the game. You know, everybody brought their own influences to yeah. the game and it kind of made it this great melange, you know, uh, homage or fromage as I would tell the team. <laughs> it's not a homage, it's a fromage. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is, is there going to be a, a, a Life of Strange 3 then? I have no idea. I can't say anything right now. Uh-huh. Wink, wink. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> say no more. Say no more. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, I, I, well, hope, I'm, I, I hope there will be at some point. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, everything you know will will come in its due time, and you know we're still off the glow of Life is Strange too, and yeah. decompression from that. But you know, like I said, it's it's fun to be a part of. It's an amazing life, a strange universe, and it's certainly as a writer changed my life. And I wasn't, and that's the thing when I say it's a different story. I mean, I hope that I would be involved in writing games, but I wasn't expecting that to be the thing that kind of 
gave me, you know, gave me whatever name I have, it, mm. you know, it, it did. And once again, so I tell writers, you know, you never know what the, where your path is going to lead, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you don't know where you're going to go. So don't, you know, don't judge yourself too harshly and go easy yeah. on yourself. Yeah. And also be aware though, there's no guarantees. You have to be very cruel in a way. And I tell people just, you have to write, 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 write all the time and, and give yourself some timelines, mm-hmm. some realistic mm-hmm. ones and also have people approve your work. That's the thing. If people are not giving you positive feedback via contests or submissions, you can even collect rejections, and you should collect rejections. That's a badge of honor, by the way. That's a great thing. You should be collecting rejections. It shows you're doing it. You should always be happy with every rejection. It sucks, but it shows you're doing it, and that's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, really, and so you have to look at that. Pat yourself on the back with every rejection. You're doing it, and because there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. But at some point, you do a teacher, somebody, somebody should be telling you that you're good or that you've got something to say. And because that you're going to need that to get work, mm-hmm. you're going to need them. And you can write for yourself through the sole enjoyment. And that's one other thing. But if you want to work, you have to have people say, okay, this is worth putting it somewhere. Yeah. You know, so that's the, that's the trick I get. That's, that's the mystique. So, so you've, you've got the novel, uh, that you're working on. Um, what else is in the pipeline at the moment? A uh, game project I can't discuss. Okay. Once again. And, so, um, but, so, so, that's, and so that, and my screenplay stuff in Hollywood, I have a whole other thing going on in Hollywood with my screenplay. So, and, and focus right now, really, I'm, my little time I've got right now is the novel and, that's kind of that's taken up a lot of my my remaining time up and and joyfully so I'm having a blast and it's good because I like writing for it's great discipline if you're writing for somebody else you've got one muscle you're working and then you're writing your novel mm-hmm. you've got another muscle working yeah. and it kind of the work informs each other it doesn't doesn't hurt either and I'm able to kind of keep my branching I'm able to that's one good thing about having that mindset if you can branch off from two different things, which not a lot of writers. And so that's why people have a problem with the game. And not a lot of writers can write video games mm-hmm. in the way that they can write a screenplay because it's not all linear. Mm-hmm. And you have to think of multiple stories. And there's techniques to do that, but not everybody just has that kind of, you know, that that pattern making and that can see ahead. Actually, you were saying to us before we actually started recording that um, you write a lot, you plan out a lot um, on paper before, you, before you're on the computer. Mm-hmm because it helps with these sort of big stories and games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I love to, you know, draw, I love research is my favorite part of writing. Actually, the research is the best part because a, you're not writing and B you get to research and you get to have fun. So even if it's things I'm not necessarily interested in, once I get into it, I can always find great things. You know, for Life is Strange 2, you know, I went to Mexico City for research, you know, because the kids are, you know, the family's from Mexico, yeah. so I wanted to go there firsthand and experience it, and that helped, you know, as much as it did. And so reading voraciously, you know, and Ian Dallas was talking about this in the interview you guys did with him, too, about how, you know, he basically is getting paid to do research, which is a great way of looking at it, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, right, so my novel, I'm having a blast. Like my research involves Tar- Andrei Tarkovsky, you know, the, the Russian filmmaker, to '70s cheesy environmental songs. You know, so it's, <laughs> I'm just having a massive. You have to make it fun for yourself too. Yeah, like, yeah and, and totally. Enthusiasm should come through 
And that's one thing, you, you, like, you know when writing doesn't work is when you really just, it's not coming out. I mean, there's such a thing as writer's block. It doesn't always come out, you know, sure. But sometimes when it really isn't coming, there may be something going on that's making it not work. Mm-hmm. And you should look at that. Because mm-hmm. I know that it's so hard to sit down to write, but the thrill is when you get in that zone of once you've started writing and time vanishes and you feel like, at peace with the world and you feel like, yeah, this is good. Even if you think it's shit later and you will, at least you're getting that vibe, you know, and it's driving you forward. So I think it's, you know, the research is a big part and I like to storyboard, you know, a lot. It helps me just visualize scenes and have more fun with them, you know, kind of laying them out. And, and like I said, watching a lot of movies and reading books that have, that soak up the, what I'm doing, the, 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 you know, I'm in a big Andre Tarkovsky mode right now, the Russian filmmaker. Have you seen any of his films? No, I haven't Stalker, actually. Or Stalker. Well, watch Stalker. That's the one that you need to see. Okay. Because so- it's, it's got a big influence on a lot of games, video games. And, um, and it's, it's kind of like, I wouldn't, it's, it's, it's very, it's one of the, it's a, it's one of the first cyberpunk films in a way. Okay. And, okay. but done, but like an art house cyberpunk, which means it's almost three hours. And the camera shots are lingering, to say the least. Um, <laughs> he makes Ozu look like Robert Rodriguez. That's about his. <laughs> but his, his his filmmaking style is absolutely beautiful and, and magnificent, and 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 Stalker's gorgeous looking. So it's on Criterion. So you should definitely check it yeah, out. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you can see how it could be an, it could be a Michael Bay movie, but it's a Russian art house movie done from a different angle. Nice. But, um, yeah, so Very things like that influence me. That sense of time, you know, yeah. that sense of what time can do, even like mm-hmm. in games, like, and that's why I love like the strange of all these moments where Max sits down and has these thought. You know, we call them Zen moments, where Max sits down and has a little thought to herself. She can sit anywhere and have a memory of the place she was, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it creates this kind of interesting little separate universe for the character, even if you don't always take advantage of it, but that it's there. Yeah. But things yeah. like that, that, you know, can come out of all sorts of different literary or film or music, you know, influences. And so you never, with you know, so with games, you know, movies and books, you know, everything to me, nothing is wasted. Yeah. Everything, you should use everything, basically. Yeah. Try to use everything. Cause, you know, you've got those tools there at your disposal. Yeah, well, that's so true. On that very topic, we were going. If you've listened to some of the other podcasts, you'll hear that at the end of every podcast, we like to ask people um, what a few of the same questions, basically, to sure. see what the responses are. So, uh, what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? I watched. I have a. I watch some episodes of Monty Python. I don't know if that counts. Oh, yeah. I'm not watching anything new. I should be, but I'm I'm yeah, I'm just right now watching a lot of old older stuff, things I'm, stuff I've already seen. So I haven't seen anything recently on Netflix. I haven't watched any series recently. But so I would say Monty Python series and oh, King funny. of the Hill. Oh, yeah. fair enough, eh? I love King of the Hill. I still think it's a brilliant series yeah. and and reflects on on how you wish conservatives wore today. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the last film you watched? I watched, and this ties with my novel, this horrible 1973 <laughs> big budget musical called Lost Horizon. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. It was a massive $15 million disaster oh, with wow. songs Bacharach. And Ingmar Bergman's favorite actress, Leave Ullman, is the star of this musical. And it's it's Sir John Gilgert as Chang. If that gives you an example of... 
<laughs> of how bad the film. But it was a huge disaster, and I'm I'm obsessed with film disasters. Any kind of like disaster, I love. And the songs in it, I'm kind of using as a template in my novel. These excruciating Burt Bacharach songs. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm intrigued, intrigued by this novel. <laughs> you should know. Go seriously. Go to YouTube. You can watch it a bit. You can you can read about it. It's pretty fascinating to read, and it's worth watching simply to watch a movie that costs as much money. It was a total disaster. And a very famous disaster, and and you can see why. I mean, it's but it's fascinating. It's based on a very classic book by James Hilton. They made a great movie version of it in the '30s by Frank Capra, and so they updated it for the '70s in all the wrong ways. But yeah, so I'm kind of obsessed with that right now. So that's what I watched cool. last night. And uh, what was the last book that you read? I just finished reading. I'm looking at my book list. I I, I finished like three books. I read. I I I have very. I go through about five or four nonfiction books, you know, a couple mm-hmm. weeks, every couple mm-hmm. weeks. I fly yeah. through them. Fiction takes me a little longer, but nonfiction I can fly through. So I just finished reading um, Zona, which is actually by Geoff uh, Dyer, which is actually a book about his love affair with the movie Stalker that okay. just came out. Yeah, Beatles 66, which is all about the kind of this pivotal year when they did Revolver. I'm a big Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. And then Andrew Tarkovsky's uh, Diaries, which are totally depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and then this Ellis uh, 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 in Wonderland, a short book of short stories by Harlan Ellison, and then White Fang by oh, cool. Jack London. So the, I kind of finished all. I eclectic mix of books there. I, you have to. I, I very. I have a very eclectic selection. People can't quite figure me out. <laughs> I'm a Sagittarian, so I tell people you can't hit a moving target. <laughs> that works for you in some ways, and it works against you in some other ways. But but I think once again, I think it's very important for writers. An artist to have a lot of influences to not to, like growing up. I could never listen to one kind of music. I listened to everything. My mm-hmm. my friends couldn't understand why I listened to Frank Sinatra. I like, but I like Black Sabbath and Frank Sinatra. Yeah, and I like Moby, and I like I, I like Prokofiev, and I like Harold Budd, and I like Brian Eno, and I like everybody. I like Aha, you know. I yeah. like everybody. You know, if they're good, I think everybody. You know, not if they're bad, but I think you can find good things in everything. And to limit yourself limits your art and and. You know, the Beatles are proof of that. They used everything yeah. in their music, which is why they stand the test of time. And the best artist, Tarantino, more specifically, uses mm-hmm. everything when he makes a film. He doesn't just think of one genre. He pulls in, mm-hmm. you know, everything. And so I, I, I try, I aspire to that anyway. Sometimes he pulls in too much. But. Sure. <laughs> Definitely. But you know better? I'm always, I'm, I always err on the side of ambitious failure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, 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 you know, TM, quote me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So at the very end of, of each episode, we always do a either or quick fire question. So um, I'll just jump straight in there with uh, Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049. Oh, Blade Runner. Nice. No hesitation like that. Okay. Um, on the game's theme, Heavy Rain or Detroit Become Human? Detroit Become Human. Okay. Um Wolf Among Us or The Walking Dead? Games again. Games again for people. Wolf Among Us. Yeah, that was that was a that, that's maybe my favourite one they did actually. Um, uh, a real book or an e-book? Real book. Can't uh, do e-books. <laughs> um, TV or cinema? Cinema. Nice. I'm loving the str- the strength of responses. Excellent. Right and the last one, uh, a fancy restaurant or a takeaway. 
This is the Kobayashi Marble. It's <laughs> true. We're doing so well to this one. Give my druthers a fancy restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Riders should always enjoy when they get a good meal. They should always be happy when they're eating a really good, a nice place. They should never take that for granted. <laughs> Excellent final note of advice to end up there. <laughs> Oh, that was a really great chat. Yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed that. Really, nice really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought he had a lot of interesting yeah. insights there. A really good point he made about, well, I thought about the fact that writing in the video game world has still got a way to go, you know, until to it's be recognised. Yeah, yeah, level. definitely. Yeah. Like, I don't think it has, a, definitely he said, as he said, writing's, it's grown up so oh, quickly, the video so game So much industry. faster yeah. than, than other than books yeah. or film have, yeah. But yeah, you're right, the, there's still that recognition level for write, for games generally, mm-hmm. if you don't, if you're not into video games, you still there is still this idea that they're they're for kids or yeah, they're yeah, shooters or yeah. yeah. But so life is strange is so different in that regard. Yeah. But then also the what in the industry, I think where writers, how important writers are, and what it means. What is a writer? Because mm-hmm. you're are you feeding into the narrative of the yeah. game? Are you into the design yeah. of the game? It's and it's it's you know because everyone likes a film to look nice, but there's there's a recognition in film that. It has to look nice and it has to sound nice. Yeah. And has, you know, there's, every, everyone has an equal place in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in video games, I think the gameplay still often is the number one. Yeah, and which is obviously a key thing. You don't. Oh, you, of course, you never. Of it, it's not. You don't want to be too passive. Otherwise, no. you may as well just watch a film. Yeah, the gameplay is always important, but the writing in these things is what I find as I get older really pulls me into a game and really makes me decide: Do I want to play that game or not? The gameplay can be cool. And that's great, but I'll excuse bad bad gameplay if the writing's yeah. Really I'm, good. I'm more likely to. Lead, I know others may lean the other way. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, also, my that, my reflexes aren't quite with you. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Uh, getting killed by like ten year olds in yeah, Call of Duty. It's kind of long. It's a cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so that was great. Really big thanks, to Christian, for appearing yeah. on the podcast. Really enjoyed that chat. Um, who's on next week, Tarek? Next week we have a return. The first return. The first returner. Mr. M. R. Carey. Mr. Yes, Mike himself return of the mic. Oh, very good. How you've been waiting, I've been waiting. three seasons for that one. <laughs> yes. Um, no, we, we, we loved our chat with Mike in the first season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember exactly what episode it was, but you can check it out. Uh, so I would recommend you go and listen to yep. that. But um, he's got a new book coming out, The Book of Coley, which yep. is the first in a trilogy. It's out very soon. Yes. recording. And so we thought we'd get him back on to chat a bit about that and the writing process that was behind that. And again, it's a really great chat we had yeah. with Mike. Yep. So uh, hope you tune in for that one. And don't forget, people, if you are in the mood to win a competition, well, you are listening to the correct podcast. <laughs> exactly. Because we've still got the Jonathan Whitelaw competition from last week running. So you can win a copy of Jonathan Whitelaw's book, The Man in the Dark, mm-hmm. and a t-shirt, I mean, Man in the Dark t-shirt. That's... That's the reason why I would be a kid. Yes. And also, of course, a page one notebook, which is the writer's notebook that we designed with different yep. sections for characters, plot and templates and so on. Um, so get entering. It's not got long to run now. Yep. Uh, and we'll announce the winner either next podcast or the podcast after. Yep. And as always, of course, if you want to get in touch, please do send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. You can send us a tweet, which is at right underscore gear. Yeah, and we've got a Facebook page as yep, well. Yep. So we're, however you want to, please do get in touch. We we do love listening to 
the very few people that write into us. <laughs> um, but also, what's important? What's more important than letters, Marco? Oh yeah, if you could rate us and review us, if you enjoyed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that would be great because it and it'll only take you two seconds, but it makes a massive difference to pushing us up the charts and. Being up the charts means that uh, you know we can get better guests on yeah. because we can say we're Two seconds number ninety seven in the, <laughs> the very subcategory of top ninety seven podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and two seconds is nothing. You can you can like us when you're waiting for your bus, exactly, or you're on the toilet. All of that we we would really really appreciate that. So if you do have the time to do that, we'd we'd love that. Um, but otherwise, we'll just leave you with a bit more about page one, and we'll speak to you next week. See you then. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there, searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy, and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.